Welcome to Get It Done Entrepreneurs, where we talk with founders of companies who bet on themselves in one. My name is Rich Lebrun, and I am the founder and CEO of Lebrun Advisory Group. You can find us at rlebrun.com. Our mission is to help our clients build wealth through business ownership. Stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Our special guest today is Robert Jordan. He is the founder of Interim Execs. Robert is the CEO of Interim Execs, which matches matches top executives with companies around the world. Based on research with thousands of leaders and companies, he and Olivia Wagner wrote the book, Right Leader, Right Time, Discover Your Leadership Style for a Winning Career and Company, and has launched the FABS Leadership Assessment, a free assessment at rightleader.com, which is designed to help leaders and organizations perform better. Robert also authored How They Did It, Billion Dollar Insights from the Heart of America. I just finished up that book and it was great. And he has helped publish Start With No, the number one best-selling book on negotiations by Jim Camp. Uh, There's a wonderful story. Maybe Robert can share a little bit about that on the show, too. He lives in Chicago with his family. And Robert, I can just not say thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day to be on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rich. Uh, Same back at you. Thanks for uh, having me on your show. Yeah, right before Thanksgiving, we had to get to do this. So this is a great way to wrap it up here. Well, Robert, as I mentioned earlier before the show, our guests really want to learn your story. Everybody's got a story about how they started their businesses. Some do it involuntarily. Some are voluntary. Some are you know easygoing. Some are kind of a hardline story. But nonetheless, it's your story. So would you mind telling our guests and our listeners, excuse me, our listeners, how you started your business and the story behind it? I'm your classic entrepreneur. Uh, I have been involved in many uh, startups, either uh, things where I was the prime mover or helping other entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, it's for better or worse. Some of them work and some of them don't. Um, By the grace of God, at this point, I've been in three IPOs and have helped lead a number of exits where I was with teams, early stage teams, where we sold at very high multiples to strategic buyers. So the way my wife would put that is, is that those those wonderful few uh, great events made up for a multitude of sins. <laughs> there you go. So what what caused you to do that? I mean, in fact, how long how long have you been doing it? Being being an entrepreneur. Well, I could tell my wiring from uh, an early age because I was the kid in the neighborhood who was uh, mowing lawns, you know, and and shoveling uh, driveways in the winter. Um, I remember a very early experience. I decided to um, build a go-kart. I just found stuff in a shed. I found some wheels and a hammer and nails. And some kids came over from the neighborhood and I, I started assigning them projects so we were all building this thing and at some point I had I just looked around I had all these kids and it wasn't that they were particularly competent at hammering or sawing or whatever but it was like wow I just remember like these people were were actually getting something done I'm not sure we actually made a go-kart that actually went but but it was all about the effort so you know growing up I was doing stuff like that and then uh, college had had 
different little businesses I was doing um, and uh, had one job, uh, job out of college, but I knew I wanted to go back to business school. <clears throat> Excuse me, went back to business school and it was wonderful on the one hand, wonderful people, made friends. At the same point, I got to tell you, I was bored beyond belief being in class. And um, a fellow student, this was at Northwestern, and this was years ago, there was this thing called a modem. A modem <laughs> was a device. You're dating yourself here, Robert. <laughs> you bet. It, it would hook up to your computer and a phone. And, and you know, who are you going to call like Ghostbusters? You could, you could dial up services on your computer. And, and so that, that uh, sparked a thought. I dropped out of business school to launch what became the first magazine in the world that covered online services. I was only five years too early. Um, had I done that at the dawn of the internet age, I would have had less learning lessons, I guess we'll, we'll put it. But so I, I published a magazine called Online Access. It was the first magazine in the world that covered online and internet. Did that for 10 years. In the beginning, it was a, a bloody disaster. By the end, it put me on the Inc. 500 list for fastest growing businesses in the US. Uh, eventually sold that to a big publisher and um, was kind of wondering what to do with my life at that point. And fortuitously, uh, in the online world, it was a very small community pre-World Wide Web, uh, one or two conferences a year. And I had met a guy at, at these conferences casually, but I happened to notice that every time I, I saw him once a year, he had a different business card. And so he comes up to me, and this is right at the point when I had sold online access, and the internet was just taking off. And, he starts handing me a new card and I, I said, dude, you know, can't you hold down a job? And he said, he said, you don't get it. We were in Silicon Valley. And he said, you didn't, he said, you don't get it. The, the venture guys are not going to give a rookie entrepreneur a check for 5 million bucks. And he said, he parachuted in with the team, with a team and the money. This blew my head open. Yeah. Like you do what? And he said he had this weird job title. He was an interim CEO. And then he handed me the new card. And the card said CEO of Yahoo. <laughs> and then, then that, I, I'm Rich, I am a person who determined his entire career at that point based on one conversation, 15, 20 minutes with a guy I didn't know that well but it determined the course of my life because uh, in the online world, even early on, we knew Yahoo was going to go public on no revenue and it did. And my friend who became my mentor, he served at Yahoo for about 180 days. Literally day one, he incorporated Yahoo. And by day 180, he was the chairman of the board of a public company at a ridiculously high valuation that had no revenue. <laughs> and that impressed me greatly. And so coming home from, from uh, meeting him and being coached by him, I bought two domain names. I bought interimceo.com and interimcfo.com. And I hung out a shingle and started doing gigs with early stage tech companies. 
What a story. So you've actually just been an entrepreneur your whole life for, for the most part. You Completely. The last yeah. time I do not come from any kind of money. The last time I got a paycheck from an employer, I was 20, uh, 24 years old. Yeah. So no I had, looking. I had a real job from the age of 22 to 24. And I went back to business school, dropped out after a year, raised some money for the company. And, and that was that. And no looking back. Very good. Oh, okay. I look back repeatedly. Believe me, when you, when you screwed <laughs> up as many times uh, as I have, there's a, there's a lot of looking back. Although it is interesting after many years, I've never gotten a paycheck from anyone since. I've always tried to figure out things for companies or within an industry, try to figure out how to how to be of value, what would create value. But there was one particularly very low point. And out of the blue, I got a call from a headhunter. Uh, it was a new concept at the time. Uh, for me, not, not a new concept, but for me it was. And um, because I was publishing a magazine and, and understand, Rich, in, in those 10 years, I kind of gloss over. It was so bad in the beginning with the magazine running out of cash. At one point, uh, it went bust and I it went bankrupt. And I bought the rights out of bankruptcy court to restart. And I restarted it and it was a slow build. But then the internet came around, World Wide Web. Anyway, in, in those early restart years, a headhunter called up and one of the biggest publishers in the world wanted to interview me to be a publisher. And I thought, well, this ain't working so well. And um, so they flew me to New York and it's a very famous company and the CEO, um, we, we were talking for maybe two minutes and he said, we're gonna, you know, of course we'll have to start you at the bottom as a ad sales rep. And I couldn't, I guess I couldn't control myself because before I could even think, I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and it brought him up short. <laughs> His reaction was like, excuse me? <laughs> Someone actually spoke back to him? I said, yeah, I don't think that's going to work for me. I've been publishing for years and I love everything about it. I love the creative process of the issues and the deadline pressure and working with an editorial team and an art team and buying art and supervising a sales team and selling ads and 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 running circulation on newsstands and subscribe. I love all of that. Loved all of it. And and uh, he just kind of looked at me in shock and I said, yeah, I don't think so. And that was the end of the interview. And that was my one and only uh, job interview. <laughs> so much for all that interview training you get in school, right? But, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that didn't play. I am curious, though, because you kind of jumped right into publishing a magazine. I mean, where'd you get that skill set from? Or you, just, or you had the idea, you liked it, and just kind of learned it, learned as you went? I, you know, I think there were two things going on. One is that the, the, the job I had for two years prior to going back to, um, to business school was in printing. Hmm. Uh, it was a computer graphics company. And so I learned a bit about the printing industry the actual mechanics of, of, of production of magazines and books. And the other thing is I had grown up, if you will, around, around words. My mother was, uh, is very inspiring. She's still with us. 
Um, but she was one of the first advertising executives here in Chicago on State Street. State Street was, was the mecca for retailers uh, in its heyday. And my mom was one of the first marketing executives for any one of the retailers. And so I have a great picture of her uh, with, a, with a bunch of guys in suits and they're looking at blueprints and they're looking over a building site on State Street where a, a big store was going up. And because she had always been involved in advertising and copywriting, I got this love for the printed word. Very good. Very good. All right, we kind of joked around about looking back and made, made many mistakes, all owners and CEOs do. But is there anything you look back and say, if I could just do this differently, I would have done it differently, knowing what you know today? The, the Zen in me, the, the, the meditation guy wants to say, don't, don't do that. Don't, you know, it, it was a great ride, even it, it still is a great ride. Even the disasters, I'm going to own all of it. The one thing I would say, you know, if I was talking to somebody early in their uh, career, and especially somebody embarking on, on roles in leadership, whether that means entrepreneurship or established companies, is that I have been part of a mastermind group now for many years. But if I was going back, I would have started that completely concurrently early as I was in my first company, by far, absolutely no downside to this concept of being part of an accountability group. Um, you know, this concept of mastermind, I think it originally came out of Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, that he said, uh, you know, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and the like, that they, they had something more than a friendship. He called it a mastermind. In some ways, spiritual development of a super consciousness of, of the way they supported each other. There are many mastermind groups now. It's a concept of, of holding each other in a positive sense to accountability, like having a, a board of directors, if you will. And, yeah. and uh, the, it, starting that earlier just would have been better. All right. On the flip side, let's give you some credit. You've done really well for yourself. You're successful. You've been, you know, done a lot of work in this space that you're in. Is there any one key decision or two that you made that you would say it was a catalyst to your success? Yes. We, uh, interim execs as an organization started about 15, 16 years ago, along with the rise of social networks, LinkedIn, got traction. There was a thing called MySpace. It fell away in favor of Facebook. But I started wondering, you know, how many people in the world are like me or my mentor? And we should form kind of a clubhouse in the world. And we did that. And I had, fortunately, from, from good exits and an IPO, you know, I had money to invest. And so uh, uh, started an organization, which was really just a search engine. And the first version, which was just a search engine to go find executives who are project-based in the world, whether you want to call them interim, fractional, contract, project, whatever, free search engine. Put a bunch of money into it um, uh, with my business partner, Olivia Wagner, who, who is also co-author uh, of Right Leader, Right Time. So we launched it three years, utter failure. Totally we thought we live in a Google-driven world. Information has to be free. Just put it out there. 
totally wrong, totally wrong. And there was a point where we realized because a private equity fund had called up and, and they kind of refused to use the search engine. They said, no, we want you to tell us who to hire. I was like, oh my God, we got it totally wrong. Okay, we went to an opposite model of curating and becoming an association, three years, more money, also blew it. Because, because we realized that even if people will pay you, it doesn't mean they're great. That's Now we're six years in, nothing to show for it. Um, and then we fixed on a concept we call red team. And what had happened in the intervening years is so many thousands of executives had approached us and we'd gotten to know a core of remarkable leaders. And we realized that in fact, we could form an offering in the world to do this matchmaking and we could do it in a way that we wouldn't have to bet the company every time we did it. And so this concept of red team evolved and red stands for rapid executive deployment. And when we launched red team, we took off. It was the winning formula. It was the moment. It's Rich, it's a little of a variation away from me, which is, you know, this expression of picture is worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Well, red team, this idea of expertise, the top one or two percent, um, crystallized something that made it possible for all kinds of organizations around the world to call us and to have this, this cadre, this, this team kind of approach with remarkable CEOs, CFOs, CIOs, CMOs that, that would work. And it did. And what it's a, been and it's been growing ever since. Well two things. Uh, you get the award for perseverance, that's for sure. And uh but well, this, this is a good segue. Let's talk about take a little commercial break. Talk about interim execs, talk about the company, who your customers are, you know, how people, you know, who you're looking for to engage with. Uh, and anything you'd like to promote, if you, you're, I know you got a new book out there, and if you want to talk a little bit about how that book got written, feel free to take this next few minutes. Let's uh, let's hear about all about interim execs. Well, interim execs, uh, I think it serves a good purpose in the world. It, it you know, um, we work with both um, for-profit companies who tend to be either smaller or middle market in private equity parlance. I don't think this plays much among the Fortune 500. They tend to be very deep in, in HR and succession and sometimes, but mostly this plays to small to mid-sized companies who by definition are always resource constrained. They always wish that they had more money or, or more senior talent. Um, this is also harder among startups, pure raw startups. It's hard, it's hard to necessarily afford this level of talent. However, some of these roles are now fractional. So for example, a lot of smaller organizations can afford a fractional CFO or CMO or CIO. So in this way, the world has changed for the better. You know, I think, you know, as we're recording this, Rich, there are all kinds of layoffs going on, like in Silicon Valley. And I think it's going to play to the advantage of a lot of these people who are going to end up with richer careers because there are more opportunities on a fractional basis. And so that, that's one of the things we do. So the other thing is, as a result of all this work, all these thousands of executives who we've screened, we developed, we, we observed this pattern, both career-wise, something not so great we saw among many executives, as well as seeing four 
dominant leadership styles among highly successful uh, executives. So we wrote the book, Right Leader, Right Time. Um, and, and that's just kind of at the beginning of its own journey. Uh, a big part of that is that the leadership framework we describe in there, um, the four leadership styles are fixer, artist, builder, strategist, F-A-B-S, or FABS for short, is that we are launching FABS leadership assessment as a free tool for leaders and basically for anyone on the team to learn a little bit more about themselves in terms of their own wiring, how it is they're wired. And our desire here is, is that teams can be better performing by learning more about each other, about authentically what it is that drives them. That's a little different take on like the DISC test or Meyer-Briggs, right? You've, you added more data points, more, more different perspectives. Yes, I, I think if we are successful, it is, it's an overlay. And I say if because, you know, even with um, evidence from thousands of executives, it's still anecdotal. And so launching a, an assessment tool is both a benefit to the individual to learn something, you know, in three minutes, take this, learn something, as well as it's frankly helping us out to validate are we right or are we wrong? How does this need to be rejiggered to create something with more statistical validity behind it? So you look at big tools like DISC and Hogan and Colby, and those are um, profiling systems that have been validated against hundreds of thousands or millions of people taking it. And so we're just at the beginning of that particular marathon. Perfect. So would your customers be both sides of the coin? It'd be small to mid-sized companies who need a fractional uh, leader. And then the other people, your customers are the actual leaders who could fit that role. Would that be fair to say? Yes, exactly. Okay. So yeah. if some, one of and our listeners... Sorry, sorry for interrupting you, but, but some clients are surprised at how hard perhaps a little tough we can be on them because in a way the for us to do this work world class to be best in the world at this is that we are going to be in ever more trusting relationships with ever more great executives in the world and it's a limited set it, it's not something which is kind of everyone or come come one come all and and that's the position that we have taken is, is that we have to be a trusted partner for those executives. And it, it's a two-way thing. We, we trust in their integrity. They have to trust in our integrity. And so, you know, when smart clients show up, that's great. Every organization showing up is not necessarily um, playing in the same way in terms of integrity. And so we don't take on all clients. Well, like. You know, I can understand the motivation behind the owner of a small or mid-sized company wanting to use the fractional uh, solution. Uh, that makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons on a lot of different fronts. On the other side, what's the motivation for the person who, who fills that role? Why do they want to be a fractional person rather than finding a full-time gig? Well, this has become its own career calling because, well, there are a bunch of reasons. One of them is highly successful executives who do not need the corner office anymore, who do not need the security of 
I have to be here for the next 10 years or I'm not fulfilled. Um, there are a number of people highly successful where it's not about the paycheck anymore. It's about significance. It's about meaning. It's about impact. And many of these executives come from larger corporate backgrounds where, let's face it, they're constrained. And, you know, to go into, to, to come from an organization in the billions and to go into a business that's at 50 million, you can have impact there. Mm-hmm. And it can be quick. And so there's, there's a lot of drive for executives where this is their career calling, whether you want to call it interim or fractional, which is having big impact fast. So you think, is this a, is this a new trend? Is it yeah. a trend? I guess I should ask that question. Is it a new, is it a new model versus a trend? Completely. And, yeah. and um, we didn't dream it up, but we absolutely aim to be best in the world and helping that along as a platform. And you could see this in the, the stats. I mean, just looking at, at us, we're having our best year ever. But if you look at measures like LinkedIn, you can see that the number of professionals who use descriptive language around themselves, which tends to be more project-based, is increasing. This has been around in other industries where it's well accepted. And you know, in Hollywood, Rich, you know, your favorite actor or actress, um, they're not attached to a studio for the rest of their lives, but it's, it's, it's way beyond them as well. When a, when a movie is in production, hundreds or even thousands of people are involved in that, you know, down to the key grip, down to the lighting expert, the cinematographer, it's way beyond the actors and the actresses who are in that production. It's a very natural thing. They come together, make the best movie you can. And when they're done with that production, they disband and it's totally fine. That's what they're supposed to do. Nobody loses their career as a result of it. In fact, if it's a good movie, they've just advanced. They've advanced their craft and they're going to move on to the next project. And this is the way the world consumes that industry, if you will. Yeah, I think that's a great, great analogy. I get it. It makes all the sense in the world. And uh, as you said, you know, um, you make a good movie, you actually make different types of movies, you're expanding your your reach. I want to switch uh, over, switch gears on you a little bit looking forward. Okay, you've been in business for a long time. Uh, we both talked about that a little bit early on, we're kind of dating ourselves, but in a good way, we have a lot more wisdom, hopefully from all the mistakes we made. But you know, you've weathered a lot of storms. We I don't think we've ever seen all the storms appear at one time in one year, like we are seeing in 2022. So how are you navigating your company? Do you see as an opportunity to grow, to expand, do you decide time to retreat, adapt, adjust, pivot, you know, whatever terminology you want to use, but how are you uh, seeing this time in order to run your company successfully? Well, I, I, I don't want to crow about it, but our business is only going to continue to get bigger and better. Um, this is the one side, this is the plus of being on the other side of six years of, of failure and, and no revenue and, and models is, is that what we've done on the surface may look like, oh, that's so easy. The reality of it is it's incredibly hard. And um, this, this indefinable thing about coming into trusting relationships with hundreds of the best executives in the world, I don't know how to shortcut that. 
you know, if I was starting from scratch now, well, it would look like any other kind of startup. And maybe it's not the same thing as where you say, well, we're going to go build a, a battery plant and it's going to take a billion dollars in two or three years. Um, but it is, it, it's something that took a long time to accomplish. And, and it happens that the world is the way that it is. And so it will keep on increasing. It doesn't mean that as a business, it's always going well or that it is not crazy making. I'm, I'm not trying to say that. And so, you know, still tools, you know, personally that I have um, uh, that, that, you know, hopefully keep me sane, uh, family and friends, they could weigh in on exactly how well that's working. But, um, you know, when we did how they did it, uh, uh, a book, which was a series of Q and A interviews with champion company founders, we kept on interviewing amazing people. And at one point we interviewed um, a founder who had grown from three to 2000 employees. And I asked him how he did it, it kind of good kind of chaos. And he said, you have to stay at the center. And what I took away from that was this, this core of who he was that had to remain in possession of himself and collected and whole. And one of his things was meditation. And I've been meditating for many years and I consider it wonderful and a saving grace at the same time. Well, a uh, couple of things I got out of this, uh, which I want to talk a little bit about your personal uh, discipline to stay focused, which you kind of just alluded to. But it seems like you mentioned also perseverance allows timing to be right. You know, you, you said the market's changed. You, this is a couple of times you said that you've come out early. The market finally changed and caught up with you or, or you caught up with that them either way. And then the timing hit right and then you grew. Same thing right now. Our economy's created this new fractional world, which is being embraced uh, on both sides of the coin. Let's talk about your personal life a little bit. Talk a little more about your the meditation. What else do you do to stay at the core? Okay, to stay focused because you have to get up on Monday morning, and go to work like everybody else does, and you got to have that right attitude to navigate these crazy times. One thing is I paint. I have been painting uh, uh, for many years now. Um, I'm I'm a late bloomer because I finally have a first gallery show coming up, um, and. Uh, uh, I live in Chicago in an apartment and it's a good thing there's a gallery show because we're getting a little crammed out of our own uh, apartment from a volume of paintings. I have an office, but I also have a home office slash studio, which we're in here. And so, so well, you'll have to I, let me know. I'm a, I'm a closet painter. Someday I like to be able to come out and, uh, and uh, but I love painting myself. So. Oh, we're going to have to uh, separate session, Rich. We're going to have to show each other, <laughs> show and tell. Yeah. Um, but I have uh, a, a a strict sense of there's there is a time for shutting off from work and to go into a different mode, whether that is playtime with family or friend and friends or painting mode, and that I'm not I, I'm not interested in mixing those two. I don't want to be the person on vacation who is looking at emails. That's not me. Um, I go on vacation and uh, everybody knows I'm not responding to email. Now, I have the advantage because I am surrounded by colleagues far more competent than me. And so there are people looking at, at all those emails, just not me. 
Um, so so I, I depend on, on some of those uh, rituals for, to, 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 you know, rejuvenate my own batteries. That's great. Yeah. I mean, when you're painting, you really can't focus on anything else. So <laughs> it's very calming. And uh, I'd love to learn. We'll talk off offline a little bit more about your uh, show that's coming up. Robert, uh, again, I can, and I can never thank well, we get guests enough to take time out of their busy day to share your insight and your wisdom. I know our listeners will appreciate that. We all get a chance to learn from each other. So your generosity and sharing your life story and how you get your business started is just uh, enormously, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm great, extremely grateful for that. Uh, that said, if anybody wants to, to utilize your services, learn more about what you do, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, we can be found at interimexecs.com and that'll do it. Very good. That's easy enough. And we will put that on the uh, podcast notes, uh, which will be uh, up and up in all platforms in about three weeks. Robert, uh, I hope you have a great day. Great Thanksgiving. We got a chance to connect, which has been wonderful. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Rich. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Rich LeBrun here. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Get It Done Entrepreneurs. If you are a successful business owner who would like to be on this program, please visit us at rlebrun.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form and we will reach out to you. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show, include the hashtag get it done entrepreneurs. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, rlebrun.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.